Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we continue our talk about the Han commanderies in Korea. Where are we now in Korean history? As a brief reminder, Han China conquered the major northern Korean power, Joseon, in the 1st century BCE. It then incorporated into its empire the northern coastlines into more or less four administrative districts or commanderies, Lelong, Xuantu, Lintan, and Zhenfan. At one point in time, each of these commanderies were managed by walled cities with tens of thousands of Chinese colonialists and, and officials and soldiers. The indigenous kingdoms and tribes in the north have been more or less pulled into a sometimes uneasy relationship with these commanderies. Some of them, such as the Ye in the northeast, willingly adopted Chinese suzerainty in exchange for their own semi-autonomy, but the Ye would not remain subservient for long. Others, such as the conquered Joseon, were basically bribed into compliance by having their social elite integrated into the administrative structure of the commanderies with mixed results. 200 years later, around the 1st century CE, Han China remains in control of its empire, but the cracks in its wide-ranging empire are beginning to form. Most of the Chinese colonial colonialists in Korea came from three regions, the Liaoning Peninsula, the Shandong Peninsula, and Hebei. It just so happens that lots of rebellions are occurring in these regions at the time. Partly because of that, large populations of Chinese settlers were moving to the Korean Peninsula, particularly to the Lelong Commandery. And because some of them were escaping political instability, some of them were aligned against the ruling Han. This caused internal strife at home to spill over into Korea with wide-ranging consequences for both the Chinese emigres and the Koreans. In this, episode, in, in this episode, we'll continue where we left off regarding Wang Zhou's rebellion against the Han Emperor and the huge consequences on the Korean Peninsula. We'll then conclude the story of the commanderies, following them until their demise. We'll also begin our talks about the many indigenous kingdoms in the south that these commanderies came into contact with. Of course, the larger kingdoms, such as Goguryeo, deserve their own separate episodes, which they will, so not to worry. You'll also see our first, but definitely not our last, mention of the Wa people, or as we know them today, Japan. So we left off the last episode after Wang Zhou killed the Lilong governor and established his own regime there. He would only rule for five years, though, before the Eastern Han would restore order in Inner China and also bring back control of Lilong. But that rebellion would only be a harbinger of more turmoil to come. In the 2nd century, the Eastern Han dynasty became really unstable again, allowing a family called the Gongsun, or Gongson in Korean, to take control of Laodong as the official governors, and also exercise influence over the Shandong Peninsula for almost 50 years. One member of the family... Gongson Gang, inherited control of Lilong and Xuantu from his father. Around 204 to 207 CE, he formed another commandery from the then-abandoned southern part of Lilong, or what was left of it, and called it Daifang. He did it to a. better control the growing Han to the south, and also because b. Lilong was still under the influence of the Chinese Han. While Lilong's seat was located near Pyongyang, Daifang's was located in present-day Huanghe province, or Huanghe Bukdo, south of Pyongyang, directly above the present DMZ. Studies of tombs in Daifang give us clues as to what might have happened. 
In the first century BCE, wood frame tombs were most common. Later, it was log frame tombs. By the Daifang era, we find log and brick tombs or or brick frame tombs with inscriptions showing some inhabitants who came from Shandong. It's important to note that Gongsun did not seek to reform Lilong or completely take it over. One theory is that Lilong and Daifang were, separate to keep, were separated to keep control of different kingdoms. Lilong was used to maintain relations with Joseon and Ye, while Daifang was used to maintain relations with the Han people, Han people, that is, the Korean Han people, to the south, and also to maintain relations with the Kingdom of Wa. So, let's talk about Japan. And this is significant because this is the first time in this particular storyline and that's the China-centric one, that we'll be mentioning them. When we go back and talk about this same period from the perspective of Koreans, we'll mention them again, but even earlier, since Japan and Korea have been in, had been in close contact much earlier. To be clear, prior to Daifeng's formation in around 200 CE, Lilong was a main contact point to China for the Wa Kingdom, or the Japanese. And I'll use those terms interchangeably. The earliest mention of the Japanese people in historical records was done in reference to the Lilong commandery. It occurs in the Hanshu, um, in Korean it's Hanza, or the Book of Han, in the line, quote, The Wa people lived in the midst of the ocean that extends out from Lilong commandery. They have created more than 100 states from which they pay annual tribute to Lilong, dispatching envoys with tribute goods at regular times, unquote. And with that one line, the... The Wa people, or the the precursors to J the nation of Japan, enter the record books, uh, the record books of China. The Hanshu was written in the early first century CE, but was referring to the condition extent since the first century BCE. So our guess is that uh, when they talk about the Wa, they're talking about um, as early as early, uh, first century uh, BCE. Li Sangshi a writer, a Korean historian, writes that the Wa visited Lilong during a time when it was the sole commandery on the peninsula. As you may recall from our last episode, by this time, both Lintun and Zanfan had been terminated and Xuantu had moved to Liaoning. The reason the Wa traveled all the way to Lilong, and remember, Lilong is on the opposite side of the peninsula and just as far from Japan as you can get in Korea, was because they had been training and interacting with the Korean Han people in southeastern Korea, so modern-day near Busan and stuff like that. The 100 states referenced in the Hanshu most likely referenced northern Kyushu. Wet rice cultivation had been transmitted to Japan from southern Korea a few centuries prior to the state. The Korean Hans themselves sent an envoy to Lilong in 44 CE. But after the formation of Daifang, uh, Daifang was the one to take over the maintenance of the relationship with Wa people. So we'll jump way ahead here, but not to worry, we will go back in time to cover all the great Korean empires of uh, Goguryeo, Han, etc. in a future episode. But we'll jump way ahead here to the 3rd century. Gongsun would continue to control Daifang and Lilong until the 3rd century, when the state of Wei would launch a covert amphibious assault to win them over. They would basically, in the, in the cover of night, they would launch these ships, and then the army, the their army, the land-based army would uh, basically attack the the commanderies. It's crazy to think about it now, but these commanderies have survived the fall of the Han Dynasty at this point, 
In 220, the Stoi dynasty falls and China enters its famous Three Kingdoms period. Wei is one of those kingdoms. By now, the southern part of the peninsula is controlled by Samhan. And again, not to worry, we'll discuss this in detail in the near future. Samhan is a collection of, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, Han peoples. Emperor Ming's first order in Korea, uh, Emperor Ming of Wei, is to provide the local Korean Han chiefs and their immediate subordinates with seals, quote, engraved with the titles of Fief Lord, or Upgun, and Fief Leader, or Upjang, respectively, unquote. The Samhan people enjoyed Chinese dress so much that even the common people were known to have traveled to the commanderies to offer tribute. So even they were even they were rewarded with seals, even though there was no purpose for it. The records show that a thousand people got seals and robes and caps. It's like school nowadays where everyone gets a participation trophy and everyone's a winner. Side note, this won't be the first time that Koreans, particularly the ones from the South, would treasure Chinese culture. My hot take is that it's not necessarily Chinese culture, but knowledge and technology and new things. It's perhaps in the Korean blood to love advanced uh, advanced stuff. This will be a recurring theme from here on out, even at the hands of persecution by, let's say, less civil societies, and I'm looking at you, horsemen from the North, Koreans would hold fast to knowledge, books, civility, religion, etc. And much of this is brought to them by China. So here's something really interesting. Meanwhile, in the Japanese archipelago, there's been a seismic shift in power from Ito, or Ido-guk, to Yamatai, or Yamatai-guk in Korean. Um, Now, this is not a Japanese podcast, um, I'd love to go down the wormhole here, but, uh, but we need to keep focus on Korea. Himiko, the famed queen of Yamatai, appears to have closely observed how Wei's subjugation of Lilong and Daifang happened. In 239, she shrewdly sends envoys, including Nashime, to the Wei capital of Luoyang. The Wei emperor conferred upon Himiko um, for her troubles the title, quote, King of Wa, friendly to Wei, unquote. While Nashima received the title, quote, leader of court gentlemen conforming to the good, unquote, and the other envoy the title, quote, commandant conforming to the good, unquote. High praise coming from the way. Each was presented with seals engraved with their respective titles. In fact, all these titles were better than the ones given to the Han chiefs. It was a clever game of diplomacy by the queen, because at the time, the Wa were clearly not a threat to Wei. However, Goguryeo and the other Korean states were very much a threat. So Wei chose to stay friends with distant neighbors who could clearly help them with their closer neighbors, with whom they were much less friendly. Wa would continue to favor uh, curry favor with Wei, sounding, uh, sending envoys to Luoyang in 243 and 247. This is one of the first times, but clearly not the last, where the Japanese people would take advantage of their geographical geographical distance to study what is happening in the West in order to protect themselves. One really obvious example, another one, is when they were able to see in the 19th century how the West, I mean, you know, the <laughs> the Occidental West, would force their way into Japan. And in response, they would, of course... Uh, um, uh, launched the Meiji Restoration and the rapid industrialization of Japan. So that's what I thought was kind of a quick parallel there. Um, you see the the Japanese wisely kind of viewing what's going on between China's, China and Korea 
and taking steps to uh, avoid the same fate or make uh, the fate better. You can also clearly see, even in this early time, and we're talking about, you know, 240, 250, um, how intertwined Korea, Japan, and China are. I'm going to take a, a, side, a little, a quick side tour into some citizenship policies because it's very important. It, it, it is pretty relevant to discussing um, how Chinese and Korean people were treated at the time because I know we're talking a lot of politics here and we're, we're reading the official entries of the Chinese histories, which generally don't focus as much on the social aspect of things, but obviously we want to get a glimpse into what society was like back then. And um, a lot of this stuff we're getting from the record books, but also from archaeology. So historian uh, Kim Byung-jun argues against the common theory that Han China separated the Han Chinese populace of Lilong from the nat native Koreans due to some sort of ethnic policy. Instead, he notes that the government made a distinction between the conquerors and the conquered so that they could institute a kind of affirmative action policy to ensure that the conquered Koreans would not resist their authority, and this would be the, the newly conquered Joseon, they took steps to offer preferential policies, such as hiring them into official uh, positions. So they had to keep track of who was you know, part of the conquered and who was actually an, uh, an uh, immigrant from China, not necessarily because of ethnicity. This was to be a stopgap solution for the ultimate method of integration, namely intermarriage. So this was, you know, more or less an official policy by the China, by the Chinese for the Koreans, that eventually the goal was to have the indigenous Koreans and the Chinese intermix and therefore somehow invite Korea permanently uh, into China. In this sense, and using a, you know, pretty blunt, um, blunt comparison here, but in this sense, their colonial policy was much more in line with the Spanish Empire rather than the British. Rather than, rather than planning on a strict ethnic division like the British did, the Han had expected broad intermixing of the indigenous and the Han immigrants. In fact, there is a record of a legal case that dates back to the early Western Han period. Again, just an insane fact that we could be even talking about actual legal cases so long ago. And the fact that such records have survived that long. Anyway, this legal case concerned another commandery, the non-commandery, located in Hubei, which is uh, pretty central to China. The governors of that territory, or commandery, were able to find a legal leap, loop, uh, excuse me, loophole in the imperial code to subject the non-Han people at the time to the same tax and corvée, or forced labor in lieu of taxes, as the ordinary Han people. In other words, during this rapid expansion of Han China or China proper, they're running into all the indigenous people, even in central China. And the goal there, you know, the closer you get to central China, probably the closer the uh, the the tribes and ethnicities of the people are to quote unquote proper Han Chinese. And so the more realistic it is for them to intermix with each other and the closer they are in terms of culture anyway. So so each of the governors of these territories are trying to find loopholes in the law to see if they can get some tax money, essentially. So it's not about it's not about the British Empire where you have a few British people ensconced in some huge mansion and you know cracking the whip on 
the indigenous people like slaves and then you know take and then uh stripping the land of the resources and sending it back to the motherland it's more in line with um these people are eventually going to be citizens just like us so let's find out a way in the law to tax these people and if they can't pay the taxes in cash then we're going to institute a corvée in other words they're going to work off whatever taxes that we're imp- we impose on on them so we know from this contemporaneous legal case that most likely the same thing was happening in uh in Korea as well and this case sets a precedence for how Han China could have viewed Korea at the time. It also makes sense because the Koreans were also an agricultural society, and therefore such taxes and corvées would have been a natural fit. And um, a lot of the writers uh, emphasize the fact that a place like Pyongyang, um, in terms of latitude, was very, very in line with places like Beijing. And that's really important because in terms of climate Pyongyang and places like Beijing were right on the border between agricultural societies to the south and nomadic steppes people to the north. And that's probably why the the invading Han Chinese probably recognized that uh, the indigenous Koreans were, you know, pretty similar to them. They were agricultural people. They were farmers. Um, they had established a sedentary society, and it's a sedentary society that is kind of the crux for you know intellectual advancement. Therefore, Kim argues, the goal of Lelong was not to assert permanent separate rule over the Koreans, but to start taxing the Koreans, just as they were taxing their own citizens in central China. So, back to the story. In 244, Wei commenced war against Goguryeo. Again, this is the first time we're really hearing Goguryeo. We're going to dedicate a whole episode to this very, very powerful kingdom, um, but not in this episode. While at the same time exerting pressure on the Ye and Han people. There was a lot of statecraft going on. Wei tried to separate eight chiefdoms in Jinhan from the jurisdiction of Daifang and transfer them to Lilong, but that was that plan was foiled by a mistranslation. Um, and there was, some Han, uh, there was another Han uh, chief chiefdom that attacked Daifang. Uh, there was a lot of turmoil going, a lot of war going on there. Several dozen states in Samhan, including Nahe, surrendered to the Wei in 246. Meanwhile, the Ye, who had been subjugated by the Goguryeo, submitted to Wei in, ex- Wei in exchange for titles. At this point, Wei had put both the Ye and the Wa as tributaries. The Han put up a hard fight, that is a Korean Han, but Wei mobilized the armies of Daifang and Lilong to bring temporary control back again by 248. In 265, Wei itself falls to the Jin Empire. So these commanderies have been around for so long, nearly 400 years, that they've seen the rise and fall of, well, at least the fall of the Han Empire, the rise of the Three Kingdoms, and now we're on to the next phase of the Chinese Empire, we're on to the Jin Empire. By this time, there are records of envoys from Mahan and Jinhan visiting the Jin court. This was because by this time, Lilong and Daifang were mere, sh- mere shadows of their former selves. In 274, the Western Jin establishes the Office of Commandant of the Eastern Barbarians in Laodong to oversee management of the Far Eastern regions, thus sucking a lot of the responsibility from Lilong and Daifang. Lilong and Daifang fall to Goguryeo in 313 and 314, respectively. 
that Gigi Tongjian and Samguk Sagi both confirmed these events. There are many signs that, by that time, both commanderies had lost much of their power and authority. For example, just prior to Lilong submitting officially to, to Goguryeo, a thousand of its households had switched allegiance to Goguryeo. This would have been unimaginable in a situation where the commandery was strong. Also, the Chinese history books do not mention any names for governors for either commandery. Instead, they mention Zhang Tong from Liaodong, suggesting, suggesting that perhaps the upheaval caused by the collapse of the Western Jin had caused both commanderies to be essentially unmanaged. So, during this regime change, the Chinese Empire is barely holding it together at home, let alone being able to institute, appoint proper officials for these two commanderies that used to be really important to them, but are now kind of on the outskirt. They're just trying to clean house or keep their house together internally. Combined with a steady migration out of the commanderies by their residents, and by this time they had Han Chinese and Korean residents in these these walled cities, that by the time Goguryeo attacked, they might have just been settlements. I'll quote from, uh, from the book Early Korea. Quote, Moreover, unlike the inner commanderies, Lilong was tasked with managing the non-Han dependent subjects of the region. Manage managing relations with these dependent subjects was a duty shared by all the commanderies that were established in non-Han territory, including Lilong. For this reason, these commanderies may be recategorized as a separate class of, quote, dependent commanderies, or Nesokun, unquote. This goes to a point or a question I made in the last episode about how similar the commanderies in China proper were from as administrative units from the commanderies in Korea, because the Chinese characters that Han China used for them was the same. It was Jun or Gun in Korean. And and uh, at least outwardly speaking, these administrative units were similar. But I think the reason why there hasn't been a lot of clarity about how similar these two things were was because it was probably a fluid situation. As this quote is saying, if you are a commandery or gun uh, within China proper, you're really only, only responsible for the territory within your borders, whereas Lilong was an outpost. So it had its own territory and its own borders, although they were kind of, you know, abstract in some ways. But it was also in charge of land outside of those borders as well. It was a time of turmoil in general. The collapse of the Chinese Empire and then the collapse of the Western Jin precipitated a land grab by all the different states of Northeast Asia. The Shanbei moved southward and plundered the Laodong region. Specifically, the Murong uh, Shanbei, or the former Yan, the Yan Kingdom, which we talked a lot about in the past, the far eastern kingdom of uh, proper China, China proper, were also making power moves and were also looking to ally with Zhang Tong in Laodong. This threatened Goguryeo, which had become very powerful, with a centralized administrative system and a very large military that can mobilize um, quickly. Again, we will cover Goguryeo in depth in another episode, but notably, this is the rare Korean empire that attacked China. Now, I don't know everything about Korean history yet. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about, about me learning Korean history. But I believe that this is actually the one and only time that a Korean empire has actually attacked China 
on the offense. Of course, it's attacked China in defense many, many times, but this is one of those, maybe it's the only case where a Korean empire has has attacked China in order to gain, gain land. So it's very notable here. What happens is that Goguryeo is on the march and it attacks Xuantu commandery. So you remember Xuantu used to be a commandery located in northeastern Korea. Um, and it was and its main responsibility was to interact with the 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 very powerful Ye people there. But Goguryeo actually conquers the Ye people and the Shuantu commandery is rolled up. Actually, the Shuantu commandery is moved completely to the Laodong Peninsula. So it's actually out of Korea at this point. And the Goguryeo Empire basically attacks Shuantu while it's in Laodong. They actually, in 302, Goguryeo actually kills 8,000 enemy soldiers and makes some pretty good progress there, but they aren't able to get full control of the commandery. Goguryeo was, however, able to block Zhang Tong's forces from joining with the former Yan. Then it launched an attack on Lilong. This war lasted for several years, and in 313, Goguryeo captured Lilong, and a year later captured Daifeng. Finally, since 108 BCE, when the Han Chinese first attacked and conquered Joseon, the Koreans finally kicked the Han Chinese once and forever off their land. For four centuries, these Han commanders were not just a symbol of China's ever-reaching empire, but a center for trade, military, and culture. They drastically impacted the native Korean empires. We will never know whether the disparate peoples of Korea, from the Ye in the north to the Han in the south, would have united earlier. The Han commanders also brought the height of ancient civilization to the Korean peninsula. Officials, farmers, and peasants alike from places like Laodong, Shandong, and Hubei immigrated to Korea and never left. They assimilated into the native population there, but not before bringing things like language, music, burial practices, food, weapons, and currency. So now that we've explored the first Chinese incursions into Korea from the beginning to the end, in future episodes, we will be revisiting some of these time periods from the perspective of the Koreans. Stay tuned for that. Until next time, take care.